Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Let me just say, for the sake of all of you who don't know uh, Walter's biography, he's, he is a professor now of history at Tulane, which is in his own hometown of New Orleans. Um, but he's worn many hats throughout his career. Um, he began as a journalist, and even in that field, coming, you know, leading uh, institutions, Time Magazine, CNN, and and then ending up as the CEO of the Aspen Institute. Um, but what I think is the most remarkable about it is the biographies that he's written. And each time he's giving us something completely different and interesting. Um, but, but before we start, actually, to talk about Leonardo and this book, but maybe I thought what we could do is talk about something that he cares a lot about in the beginning which is New Orleans. He's there, he's been involved in it, and we've had some really terrific conversations about a very unique um, city in our country, which certainly punches way above its weight in terms of population, um, but it holds this quite unique, uh, uh, you know, mysterious nature to it, uh, and uh, I, I, why don't we just well, start there? Well, first of all, I'm gonna start by saying thank you uh, for all you did for New Orleans, and Goldman did, and uh, t all the programs you have that have been down there, you know, for the uh, small business programs you've done. Uh, to tie it into the things I've been writing about, there are certain cradles of creativity that occur. Florence in 1470, when Leonardo arrives. Philadelphia in 1770, when they start holding Continental Congresses there. Silicon Valley and the Bay Area in the 1970s when Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and all these people come to the Homebrew Computer Club. New Orleans has a, a broader mix and diversity of any place I've ever been to, meaning, you know, just among the black communities, there's like five different you know, Creoles and French Creoles and Jean de Colère Libre and, you know, descendants of slaves. And, it, and likewise, almost every country has sent people to New Orleans. And you can hear it in every inflection of the backbeat of the jazz and funk music because it all flows together. You can see it in every bite of food you eat there. You can see it in the architecture. And so one of the themes of my book is how people who celebrate diverse environments and diverse interests from math to music to engineering to the humanities tend to be the most creative. And when this country, I don't want to get political here, started feeling like it was coming apart at the seams over the past you know, four, five, six years, um, I realized that things were not happening that much in Washington that I felt comfortable with, but things were happening at the local level of America. And it was certain cities around the country that had this creative diverse mix, and you saw the startups happening there, which is why Goldman has been going in there. But it's Austin and Nashville and even Chattanooga, believe it or not, Detroit. And I like to think New Orleans is part of that. So that's a multifaceted answer about why at a certain point in life you say it's time to go home and get serious. Well, that's a good place to um, 
take the next question, which is really about these periods of history. So you've chosen very important characters in each one of those phases you've written mm -hmm. about. Franklin and the period of the 1770s, uh, Jobs, as you indicated already, um, and, and of course, what we're talk, gonna talk about here, Leonardo, but if, if you look at those, um, let, let me ask you this sort of pedestrian question, I suppose, you know, and I know these are probably, you've given life to all of these individuals, but if you looked at each one of these ones you've written about, who, who do you think that the world would have missed the most? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I have to pause, because they each brought something amazing to the party. I mean, on Einstein, general relativity would not have occurred. I mean, it wasn't like there are 20 other people. There was Hilbert trying to do the math, but that's after Einstein had the theory. So he changes things radically. Likewise with Ben Franklin, you had passionate people like John Adams and his cousin Samuel. You had people of great rectitude like Washington. You had really smart people like Jefferson and Madison. But Franklin was indispensable because he's the one who brought them together and made them compromise and create the Constitution and the Declaration. And as for Steve Jobs, um, when he asked me to work with him, I realized he had just transformed every industry I could think about. He had transformed the cell phone industry, transformed personal computers. I mean, up until the Mac comes along, normal people can't just go buy a computer, take it out of the box, and plug it in. The music industry with both iTunes and the um, iPod, the publishing industry, the retail store industry, digital animation. So it's very rare that a business leader gets to transform industries like that. This is a long way of me thinking out loud on how to answer your question. Um, it's not, unfortunately, Leonardo, because as brilliant as he was, he doesn't affect history right away, because he doesn't publish, you know, the printing press has just been invented. I would say that in some ways, the person I like in terms of what they put in the DNA of humanity would be Ben Franklin, simply because everything about what America became, a sort of middle-class, entrepreneurial, business-oriented, but still civic-oriented Main Street values, he's the one founder who brings that to the party. Mm. Well, we're here today to talk about Leonardo da Vinci, so maybe let's turn to your book. Um, you know, David McCullough, the historian, once told me in his work, in his book, for example, on John mm -hmm. Adams, that he got to know him mm -hmm. through the extensive amount of letters, but right. the diary, the small mm -hmm. diary himself, and he got the sense mm -hmm. of the personality. You have gotten to know da Vinci by going through 7,200 pages of notebooks. How do you, when you look at these sketches, these notes and so on, um, what, what, are these, what are these notes, what do they all tell you about this person? Well, first what of all, you see you? the diversity of his interests. You see a mind dancing with all parts of nature, all on pages. Fortunately, paper's a great technology. Um, I could get Steve Jobs' notes from the 1990s because he was writing on a next computer and the operating system was like, you know, you couldn't get it to work anymore. But paper's a great technology. It has a long battery life. The operating system never goes out. So we can just go look at Leonardo's notebooks. This is when he turns 30, and he's mainly been doing theater production, so he's got the craggy old warrior in his costume, but 
He also, if you see, there's a tree growing into it, because Leonardo, as a scientist, has discovered Leonardo's law of branching, which is that if you have a trunk and it branches out, the cross-sectional area of each of the branches adds up to the cross-sectional area of the trunk. But the cool thing is he was doing anatomy and dissecting human bodies, and he noticed this was true of our veins and arteries. So he's just sort of doodling that with that thing. He loved curls and swirls of water because um, he, he tried to figure out the math, the Fibonacci's equations, of why do swirls happen. He does it with air, and you see he's doing it with the curls of hair in the upper left, and then the math. He also loves the ancient riddle of squaring the circle, uh, which means how do you create a square that's the exact same area as a circle uh, with only a ruler and a protractor, which is very hard to do because pi is an irrational number. But there are many ways that Leonardo tries to do it. And so you just see so many of these things. And on the far left of the um, spread, he just writes questions every week that he wants to know. Like, why is the sky blue is on there. But is it true down in yeah, left? Is left. that actually a recipe for a blonde hair dye? Yes. You've, been, you've read the book. Yeah. The very, uh, you have, you, you, have a, you have a pen, by the way, because I'd actually like to take yeah, yeah, that yeah, down and death. figure out how to I'll tell you what it says. If you boil the husks of two types of nuts, one of them being walnuts, sacca de noche, uh, in oil, and you put it on your hair, it turns it blonde, and all of a sudden you get a personal glimpse. The guy is probably 31 when he's doing this, and he's so vain, because he's really good looking, you know, if you've seen Vitruvian Man, he's, you know, well-built. He's got curly, long hair. And he goes, oh, my goodness, he's starting to go gray. And he's vain enough that he wants a hair dye. And so, and right above it, it says, describe the tongue of the woodpecker. Now, I mean, who gets up one morning and just says, I want to know what a tongue of a woodpecker looks I mean, how, what do you do, get a woodpecker? And open but that's Leonardo. It's just everything. He's just curious about everything. He only entirely finished about 14 or 15 paintings. Um, and even though he, uh, he wrote uh, quite extensively, um, he never published any of them. Right, yeah, his notebooks are never published. Um, he's known for not finishing his paintings, not relinquishing them from the very first portrait, which is Geneva da Benci down in the National Gallery in Washington, to the Mona Lisa, the poor cloth merchants who commission it don't ever get the portraits of their wives, because he was, like Steve Jobs and others, a passionate perfectionist. I love, though, Vitruvian Man, because to me it brings together everything about Leonardo. Um, he does this collaboratively with friends. I didn't know that, and I don't think most people knew that. What happened is the Duke of Milan wanted them to help build a cathedral, and like Steve Jobs, Leonardo believed sophisticated. Uh, simplicity was the ultimate sophistication. So he wants a very simple, not like the Milan Gothic monstrosity in that city, he wants a very simple Greek cross, equal length transept and nave, and a circle around it. And so he and three or four friends go to Pavia, where they build this cathedral. And at the castle of Pavia, in the library, is a manuscript of Vitruvius's book on architecture, because the Renaissance is about rediscovering these old manuscripts. Paggio had famously rediscovered this you know, a Vitruvian manuscript. And they all decide to illustrate it. And um, Vitruvius says, 
the proportions of a human should be reflected in the proportions of a church. Leonardo is such a geek, there's like 240 measurements he does. Even though Vitruvius had done all the measurements, uh, Leonardo does it on his students, like from the ankle to the knee to the groin to the navel to the chest, and he has everything anatomically correct. And so when he does it, you know, it's a perfect anatomical drawing of a human. But what um, uh, Vitruvius had said was that the navel is at the center of, uh, of the earth. But he also said that the genitals are at the center of creation. And so what Leonardo does is he does a square and has the genitals right in the center of it. But then he figures out how to do a circle that would be part of it. And um, if you go look at the actual drawing, you see his protractor point right in the navel. And he does the circle so that it goes up higher than the square. And in doing that, to him, this is mystical because they're designing this church as uh, this way. The square ends up being squaring the circle. They're the same area. So it's almost as if it's something you know, spiritual in nature, that you can do it with the human proportions like that. So it's a piece of great anatomy, a piece of great math. It is an unbelievable piece of art when you see it. It's left-handed cross hatchings, all shaded. But then when you stare at him, you realize, too, that it's a self-portrait, that there he is with his curly blonde or dyed blonde hair. Uh, sort of standing naked in the center of the spirit and center of creation saying, how do I fit in? And that was the quest in his life. That's why he cared about everything from anatomy to zoology to art to music, was how do we fit in to the spirit of this creation? That's what the Mona Lisa is about. That's what every piece of art is about. Now, um, the Last Supper. So I just want to reflect on this while we're on the discussion of paintings. Um, here depicting the reactions just after Jesus tells his assembled apostles, as you see here, that one of you will betray me. Now, um, you, you wrote and observed that Kenneth Clark had described this, the, the Last Supper, this scene that we see here, immediately before us as the keystone of European art. What, what did you mean by using Clark well, one to describe of the, yeah. this particular scene? One of the things that Leonardo brings to art in this world is that the outward expressions and outward motions reflect inner emotions. And you don't have that generally in painting before then. People are pretty staid. But the other thing Leonardo brings is that he was a uh, theater impresario, producer. And that's what his job was in Milan. Most of what he did was pageants and plays. That's the way dukes and Medici entertain themselves. And so Leonardo knows very much about stage perspective. And if you look at The Last Supper, it's kind of interesting because it is clearly the work of somebody who loves stage drama, loves the reactions and things. It starts, if you look at uh, Jesus' forehead, you can see the perspective lines coming out from his forehead scientifically accurately. But then you look at the walls, the two main walls, and they go in kind of fast. Well, why do they do that? Well, that's what happens on a stage. When you put the scenery that way, they make the stage look deeper. And then the characters are all, I mean, Kenneth Clark does say something I don't agree with, which is like, it feels frozen in time. No, it actually feels like a narrative. As you said, it begins with Jesus saying, one of you shall betray me. But you can look at the apostles right next to him. They've already heard the line. And they're reacting with the next line of verse in the Bible, which is, is it I, Lord? Am I the one? And then it keeps going out as they're trying to hear it. 
And then you feel the scene continuing, the narrative continuing as uh, the sound bounces back and Jesus says, he that dippeth his hand. And you can see Judas there in the blue, fourth from the left, dipping his hand in the bread. And finally, Jesus leaning forward with his hands out to, for the bread and the wine for the institution of the Eucharist. So it's not just one scene, it's a narrative. And what particularly puzzled me is that Leonardo is so scientifically accurate, and yet the light is on that right wall, and on the right cheek of Jesus, it's coming in, and yet the windows are all from behind, and he gets the light wrong. But then, if you walk into the refractory in Milan to see this thing, you're in a room, it's only got one window, and the window is on the wall to your left as you walk in, and you realize that Leonardo is painting it as if the light is coming in from that window. That ability to join fantasy and reality, that's what makes him creative. That's what makes him imaginative and a genius, is that fantasy and reality kind of blur for him, and if he's going to design a stage prop, he then wants to make it into a real machine. Um, well, just continuing with our painting thing, we, we couldn't have a discussion today without this painting, um, which Leonardo started to work on in 1503. Um, but in the, in the book, you called it the culmination of a life spent perfecting an ability to stand at the intersection of art and nature. Um, so can you just describe what you meant, not just by that statement, but also, what went into the work, and what do you think that uh, Leonardo would make of the uh, endless fascination with it today? Yeah, one of the things, we keep talking about Kenneth Clark, but one of the things I disagree with Kenneth Clark, who was a mid-20th century art connoisseur, and, uh, is he said, it's a shame Leonardo spent so much time, squandered so much time, he says, doing math and science and anatomy and zoology and all that, because if he hadn't done all that, wasting his time trying to square the circle and doing optics, etc., he would have finished more paintings. Well, if you go to the National Gallery and see Geneva da Benci, which is the painting of a wife of a Florence cloth merchant in three-quarters profile with a river, you say, oh yeah, that's a pretty good painting. It's clearly not the Mona Lisa, uh, but it's maybe the guy who will go on to paint the Mona Lisa. And then you see the Mona Lisa, which is the end of his life, and you see the huge difference. Had he not been interested, in my mind, in everything from the spirituality of how we fit into creation to uh, anatomy, zoology, optics, and whatever, he never would have gotten to the Mona Lisa. He would have painted a lot more paintings, as Clark said, but they would have been more like Geneva da Benci's, not Mona Lisa's. And I can just give you a couple of quick examples of it. For example, he, uh, before, he starts in 1503, he takes him 16 years of layer after layer of thin glaze so that the light sort of bounces off different layers at different angles with small amounts of pigment. So it, it's almost like a hologram and it reacts to you as you move. In order to get the lips right, he dissected 16 human faces every muscle that touches the lip and which nerve controls it from the brain or the spinal cord. He discovers amazing things about the lips on these pages of anatomy drawings. You see him do it. And even things you and I could have discovered had we thought about it, like your bottom lip is a muscle, uh, but your top lip isn't. So you can pout out your bottom lip alone, and you can pout both lips, but you can't pout out your top lip alone. 
I see that person trying it. Don't wait till you, wait till you get home. It doesn't look good here. Um, and, and so he's got it so that he knows which muscles touch the eyebrows, too, because they're the same muscles sometimes. So everything is anatomically correct. But he's also dissected the human eyes and discovered that the center of the retina sees black and white detail, whereas the edges of the retina see colors and shadows better. So I'm looking right at you, I see the details of your shirt, but I can sort of see the colors and shading of the people next to you. If you look directly at the lips very carefully, and I have a blow up of it in the book, the black and white details, especially on the right side, her right side of the face, go kind of down slightly. But the colors and shadows go up, and it's multi-layered the way he's done the glaze. So if you stare directly at her lips, you lose the smile. It's elusive. But as your eye wanders slightly, the smile flickers back on. So it becomes almost an augmented reality or a virtual reality. Uh, and all of that comes from an understanding of optics, the eye, light, uh, muscles, and everything else. And as with every painting, starting with Ginevra da Benci, but also through the baptism of Christ, which he does as a kid in Verrocchio's studio, it's always the river curling in that wonderful swirl he likes, connecting to the roads of civilization and connecting to the arteries of the human, showing how we fit into the timeless uh, creation. So to me, this is the ultimate work of, of a lifetime spent connecting art and science, humanities, engineering, and um, painting. We live in this world now of information that's more plentiful and accessible. And, um, you know, in our society now, more people are looking down at their device than mm -hmm. they're necessarily looking around. Um, and do you think, you know, what would Leonardo say about this world? Um, what would he observe about the sort of focus of people's attention as it relates to their fellow humanity. You know, Leonardo was a distracted kid and distracted, he had ADD in some ways, which is why on any given notebook page he's jumping from math to anatomy to drawing sketches for the Last Supper. Uh, but he had an, an, an extreme ability to focus when the time came. And I think that he would have liked some of what we have in the digital age. Uh, which is the ability to be curious about everything. As I say, he's always asking questions like the tongue of the woodpecker question. And the fact that he was born the same year that Gutenberg opened a print shop. And then it doesn't work very well in Germany, so they're actually Florence and uh, Venice become the publishing capitals. That was to his period what the internet was to us, which is mm -hmm. suddenly this kid who's an illegitimate runaway from the village of Vinci can learn anything he wants. He can buy Euclid at the stationers by the bridge, as he said, and try to learn, you know, squaring the circle. So that ability to be curious about everything he would love in this day and age, but he would say to people, be curious, relentlessly curious, but also focus. And I think it's that uh, inability to focus that's caused us to not have as many Leonardos these days. Hmm. Um, you know, you, in this book, your introduction of it is titled, um, I Can Also Paint. Yeah. And you've said that 
you know, around the age of 30, mm -hmm. you know, he writes to letters to the ruler in Milan and listing all the reasons why he should, and he's qualified to have a job, he should be given a job for all these things. And then at the end he said, you know, I, by the way, I'm also a painter. I yeah. can also paint, which is the title, I can also paint. So the question I have for you is, do you think um, that the people about whom you've uh, written, have, did they see themselves um, the way you see them? Well, Leonardo, I mean, you're writing about them, right? But what you know, just as taking that as an example, how how do they see themselves? Yeah. Well, starting with Leonardo, Leonardo, as I said, loved everything. So when he gets to Verrocchio Studio as a 12-year-old, he's not only posing for statues of David and helping paint the baptism of Christ. He's molding the copper ball and figuring out how to put it on top of the Duomo. He's doing props for plays and helicopters and flying machines. And he doesn't finish his paintings. This is a problem. As a young 20-something, and you know, I'm a parent of a 20-something, I can know what it's like at times. It's like, okay, didn't finish the work of Adoration of the Magi, didn't finish St. Jerome in the Wilderness, and his father, with whom he has a complicated relationship because Leonardo's illegitimate, and his father never legitimates him, but his father does notarize his contracts for him, and then Leonardo screws up by not delivering some of these paintings. So by age 30, he decides it's time to hightail it out of town and go leave Florence for Milan, and he writes his job application letter. And at this point, he's so contorted about these paintings he hasn't finished that he wants to be an engineer, an architect, you know, somebody like that, which is to him a higher form of work. So the 11 paragraph letter, the best job application in history that he writes to the Duke, is starts, you know, I can build weapons of great war. Paragraph two, I can divert the course of rivers. You know, paragraph three, I can build great monumental buildings. All these things that only paragraph 11 says I can also paint and sculpt as well as any person. And so he wants to see himself as a engineer and artist, which is what he becomes to the Duke of Milan. That's part of the theme of my book too, is that we just think of him as a painter. No. He was an engineer, and he did not make a huge distinction between the beauty of engineering and the beauty of art. You know, it was all brushstrokes to paint the amazing works of nature, as he said, whether it was an engineering design or a math equation or a brushstroke of a paintbrush. To him, it all captured the beauty. So I tried to see him as an engineer and artist, not just as a painter. Uh, Likewise, going back to you say, how do I do it with the others? I feel that way about Ben Franklin, too. I mean, we think of him as a doddering old dude flying a kite in the rain, you know, saying a penny saved is a penny. You know, those electricity experiments are the most important scientific experiments of that uh, half century, the late 1700s. And he discovers a single fluid theory of electricity. And it all ties into his statecraft. I mean, this is why we have checks and balances, is the understanding of Newton and flow. That's what the Enlightenment is all about. So I try to see each person I write about in the diversity of their multiple interests. Because as I said at the very beginning, it's that ability, as Steve Jobs said, whenever he closed a product presentation, he always showed a final slide, which was an intersection of the arts and technology. 
And he said, those who stand at that intersection are the most creative. Um, well, we have a few minutes left here, so let's ask you a few um, questions. The leader, the leader that you uh, most admire. Well, nowadays it's Ben Franklin because he's the person we most need, giving our fractured uh, environment. Okay, you, you, for this question, you can't use Ben Franklin. What historical figure would you like to uh, meet? If you could meet today, well, Leonardo. Be... I mean, Leonardo. He is so damn curious about so much. If you could just go back and you read on his notebook what he's having for dinner, what he bought for the meal, who's coming to the meal, you know, what's Salai, his young boyfriend, spilling the wine, and you think, whoa, if I could be at this dinner table that sort of looks like he's sketching the dinner table, that would be, you know, if you got one chance to jump into the time machine, it would be to have dinner with Leonardo. Hmm. And then just to conclude, what's the best advice that you've ever received? The best Advice, personally, I'll give one personal and one from Leonardo, if I may. Is that all right? Sure. Personally, I come, as you said, from Louisiana. And I had a family friend, sort of an uncle, we called him Uncle Walker, who was a great novelist, Walker Percy. He wrote The Movie Goer. I had no clue what Uncle Walker did. Because we'd go over to, you know, he lived on the Bogafalaya Bayou, north of the city. And you go flirting with his daughter or water skiing or hunting, you know, turtles. It's like, what does your dad do? He's at home drinking bourbon all day, you know, you can't get a job. And said, well, he's a writer. And I didn't, you know, I was like nine. I didn't know, I thought you could be an engineer or a fisherman. I didn't know you could be a writer. So uh, when I was about nine or 10 years old, the movie girl comes out, his first book, and I read it and I get blown away. I'm trying to figure it out because it, has all these messages about what life is all about, how to lead a good life, how to make leaps of faith, but also stay grounded. And it's a beautiful novel if you haven't read it. And so I remember going to him and just being with him one afternoon and asking him about it. You know, what, was, what were you trying to preach? What were you trying to say? And finally he said to me, there are two types of people who come out of Louisiana, preachers and storytellers. He said, for God's sake, be a storyteller. The world's got far too many preachers. And his point was that if you have a lesson you want to do, don't go writing some, you know, here's what I'm preaching type book. If you want to talk about the intersection of the arts and the sciences and the humanities, whatever, do it by telling a story of Leonardo. And so I've always tried not to be a pundit. I've never had an op-ed column or whatever. I've always tried to be a storyteller. And I realized, I mean, that's the way... Homer did it, that's the way Walker Perth, that's the way the Bible does it. And it's got the best narrative lead sentence ever, you know, in the beginning, comma. And it does it through stories, not through, you know, dictates. And the best piece of advice I learned from all of my books, but ultimately from Leonardo, is just the power of curiosity, pure curiosity. I'm never going to be able to have the processing power to do the field equations of general relativity, nor most people in this room, maybe a few people you have uh, that way. But we can all be more curious. In fact, we all were more curious when we were in our wonder years, like age six or seven, like when Einstein's given the compass and he keeps wondering. Well, the key to Einstein is he never outgrows his wonder years. He's always to his deathbed wondering, why does the force field hit that particle and make it move? And likewise with Leonardo, to his deathbed, he's always curious. 
And even as I walked here, I, mean, I took the subway down, um, and I sort of swung by the river. And I'm watching the waves of the river, the little ripples, and they're moving differently from the wind. And the sun is hitting them in a special way. And I'd pause and started being curious about it, because Leonardo writes about the ripples and why do they act a certain way. And if you pause just maybe two or three times a day to see a curved leaf, and uh, Einstein once said, I was never smarter than anybody else. I was just more curious that when a beetle walks across a curved leaf and he's blind, the blind beetle doesn't know the leaf is curved. But I was curious enough to figure out, this is about the curvature of space, how that works. And so each step of the way, I just try to be passionately curious about something I'm about to pass over, like why is the sky blue or whatever. And I realize I can stop each day and look at the most mundane thing and say, I'm not going to move on until I've observed it carefully and done what Leonardo would have done, satisfy the curiosity. And just one more thing, tongue of the woodpecker, it's three times as long as the beak. When the woodpecker hits the tree like that, it would give a concussion to any other, but it wraps around the back of the brain to protect the brain when the woodpecker's pecking. There's no reason you need to know that. It is useless information. It's useless to you, just like it was useless to Leonardo when he put described the tongue of the woodpecker in his notebook. But I thought you'd like to know, just out of curiosity, pure curiosity. Right. So thank you very much, everyone, thank you for all. being here. Walter Isaacson. This podcast was recorded on October 15th. 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.